Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. The 2021 legislative session is over. So how did it go for the new Republican representative for the 43rd District, Greg Howard? And finding the best food from your local farm stand is now just a tap away with a phone app. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. The 2021 legislative session in Connecticut is over and was an unusual one because of the COVID-19 pandemic, causing representatives to carry out their work remotely at first and finally moving back to the Capitol. There were plenty of House and Senate bills to review and for some legislators, it was their first time being part of the process. Republican Greg Howard is one of those new legislators. He won the seat for Stonington and North Stonington back in 2020 after beating Democrat incumbent Kate Rotella. So how did Greg do in his first legislative session? I caught up with him recently to find out. Uh, Certainly a great learning experience. Um, You know, it was a a busy session. We did a lot of bills this year. Um, The virtual world, granted, I don't have much of a comparison, but from what I'm told by my colleagues, everything is different. But it was an advantage to me because everybody was learning the virtual world. So I wasn't as new feeling because everybody was sort of getting getting through this, this new world. So... Um, I was assigned to three big committees, Judiciary, Appropriations, and Public Safety. And, you know, Appropriations, you learn a lot there because a lot of bills are mandatory through Appropriations. And same with Judiciary. And I really tip my hat to the leadership of the Judiciary Committee on both sides of the aisle. I learned a lot. And then uh, Public Safety is right in my wheelhouse, naturally. You know, having been 19 years in, in police work and 25 years in EMS and been an emergency dispatcher, that was a, a great place for me to feel very confident having learning the system in the other two committees and then getting in there with my background and really being confident moving forward and um, ended up by the end of session because of the way a few things worked out, ended up being the ranking member on public safety by the end. So it was busy. We did a lot of bills. Got a lot done. So. Like you said, I mean, at the very beginning, it was much more of a like everything being done by Zoom. Towards the end, of course, you know, you did all get to go back to the Capitol. How was that for you as well? Because I know as, as a police officer, as a law enforcement officer, I'm sure you visited the Capitol on many occasions. But to be so much more part of it and the process, what did that feel like standing there giving those speeches in that chamber? I am still in awe of the Capitol. You know, every time I walk in there, just the building, just the fact that... To, to your point that you're in the chamber you know having impact on laws that are happening in the state of Connecticut and that's really every once in a while I take a deep breath I look around and I just take sort of in you know it's sort of surreal another thing that sort of happened was a lot of my colleagues I met through zoom so when I would encounter them in person it was it was almost like a celebrity type thing because you're used to seeing this person on a screen and all of a sudden they're there in the flesh but I did take a lot of opportunity to, because I, I know how important relationships are, to run around, you know, on, every time somebody new was in the chamber that I hadn't met before, to run over, introduce myself, share contact information. I did that virtually. Uh, every time I had an interaction with somebody who I didn't know through Zoom, I would quickly email them and say, hey, thanks for chatting with me today. This is my phone number. 
and and I was able to connect with I'm going to say you know the Republican caucus certainly a little bit easier accessibility wise but I'm going to say there's probably 40 Democratic representatives who I've established a personal relationship with or cell phone exchange etc through a virtual world so that was a that, that was sort of a, a a thing that happened that was I was proud of. So let's talk a little bit about some of the work that you did, and you did a huge amount. I mean, you only have to look at your Facebook page to see how much right. you posted as well, which is phenomenal because, you know, again, that's a good access point for members of the public to also sort of, of like see what you're doing and be able to interact with you as well. Talk to us a little bit, obviously, about there was there's one thing. I mean, you, you mentioned about these three committees which you were assigned very quickly to. I know you were very interested in the online gambling bill. Why were you interested in that? Well, a few reasons. Certainly, you know, having taken the public safety uh, ranking member role and gambling coming through public safety, I became the point person for the Republican caucus on the public safety bill. I think the more obvious reason back home is, you know, the two casinos are right here in southeastern Connecticut and are a huge supporter of local tourism and jobs. So having them come out of COVID and the hit that they took and getting them back on their feet to be able to put this new arrow in their quiver as far as a a way that they can, you know, drive people in. An interesting thing that uh, a lot of folks wouldn't think, and I didn't think, is when they went to the online gaming, you would think there would be less people coming to the brick-and-mortar establishments. But in New Jersey, in fact, they saw the opposite, that as uh, online gaming became uh, a bit more popular, more people did come to the to the brick-and-mortar casino. And, and as you may know, the uh, both of our casinos support a bunch of retail locations on site, which again are, are you know thousands more jobs. So I was really excited about it. It was really great for southeastern Connecticut. I think it was great for the state of Connecticut from a revenue standpoint. And, and frankly, it's something that was in large ways happening anyway. So for, for our local tribes who have been great partners of the state of Connecticut since 1992 to benefit from it, I think is important. And so I was really happy about it. A lot of bipartisan support in that bill and um, certainly uh, a great win for, for southeastern Connecticut specifically. And also, of course, the other thing that uh, reared its head again was the Police Accountability Bill. Last time we spoke to us, I should say the first time we spoke to you, had some, some very broad thoughts and some, and some comments to make about that piece of legislation, which I think, you know, we said last time everyone agrees it was rushed and is something that will continue to need to be addressed. One thing that did come out of this is that the, the use of force, a new exception was supposed to kick in this year, got pushed to January of next year. Just talk to us a little bit about that and what your thoughts were when that happened. Sure. So basically, it was originally supposed to be April 1st this year, and that got pushed pushed out, as you say. And, and folks, that, I want folks to understand this, that the idea there was to make sure that the officers were up on the training. And the training, uh, loosely translated, it's very intricate, but essentially, in many parts of the state, and in many parts of the country, really, but specifically to Connecticut for years, officers were trained when it came to use of force in what is justifiable and what is not. So in other words, if this suspect does this, you can do this. Just because you can doesn't necessarily make it the right decision in the moment. It's based on uh, the, the entire circumstances of that specific scenario. And long before last year, within the last multiple years, Connecticut had started to make a shift. Connecticut, a lot of people don't realize, is a leader when it comes to law enforcement and accountability. You know, we do one of you know a few states that do polygraph exams for uh, entry-level exams for new officers and, and go on and on with our certification process. But we had already made that shift. So to buy a bit more time to allow the officers or, or the departments to make sure all, all of their officers that had come through a sort of a different training platform or a different uh, training philosophy were all caught up to that. It also solidified that officers would be held accountable to their 
decisions based on information available to them at the time. The original police accountability bill sort of took that out. So this gave that back because, you know, I always use a great example. If, if you're giving verbal commands to somebody and they don't comply with them and then you, you move on to, you know, to a higher level of force because they're not being compliant and you find out later they were, you know, hearing impaired, then, you know, you shouldn't be held accountable for that if you had no way of knowing. And then another big problem with the police bill and still is a problem is the way that uh, the consent searches went down. And I understood the intent. So uh, having spoke with uh, Senator Winfield and Representative Staffstrom and really knowing what they were going for with what they did with the consent search language, the goal, I guess I should say, of that, and then combined with my experience to recognize how uh, detrimental that the way it passed was to good and honorable police work, I drafted language to, to amend the consent search language for vehicle searches and searches of persons. And both of those made it out of committee with strong bipartisan support. And by the time it got through the Senate, the vehicle search failed. So we'll have to revisit that. And then, But the, the person search made it through, made it through the Senate and the House. Now, another thing, of course, which we're waiting to hear on is the cannabis, the marijuana bill. Yeah thoughts on that because uh, i'm just going to put this out there the police generally are obviously not that happy about you know marijuana on the streets of connecticut so you know what are your thoughts as a legislator but also as a member of law enforcement yeah so um, i think i bring as as you point out a unique perspective on it and i will say that i'm not fundamentally opposed to legalization and i'll tell you why briefly in my career i've seen many folks who are addicted to crack cocaine or cocaine or heroin who cannot support their habit without breaking into homes, breaking into businesses, robbing convenience stores, etc. I don't see that with marijuana. And again, when you consider you know, the adverse outcome or uh, effect that alcohol has on society for DWI and just overall you know, causing disturbances, etc., alcohol has a significant more adverse effect on society than I've seen marijuana have. So from a public safety standpoint or a, uh, an impact on the public, I don't have grave concerns, and that's why I don't fundamentally oppose it. Is it perfect? No. Is it the way that I would draft it? No, but I'm not all that far from yes, but you can't expect someone who has put 19 years into public safety, well, 25, you count EMS, to to make a vote that's a huge detriment to public safety in the interest of, you know, legalizing something when we can look around the other states, and I'm not sure why Connecticut routinely has to find the most inefficient, expensive way of doing things when we have other models, like the Vermont model, for example. Um, where if you want to grow marijuana and smoke it, go ahead. You know, that seems to me the libertarian in me says, do that. Um, the conservative in me says, yeah, do that. That's fine. Just don't have an effect on everybody else. Um, and I think this bill does that. For almost 20 years, you've been making a difference as a member of law enforcement here in Connecticut. You are now part of the legislature, making a difference in other ways. What does that mean to you? Everything. My sons are my world. And, you know, I... I tell my boys, you know, you, a life lived for others is the one that's worth living, you know. And, you know, I, I sometimes think of the way the world is, and I, I you know, hear the news, same like everybody else, and think, geez, what are we doing? Are we a snowball running down a hill? And it's very easy to just say, ah, whatever, throw your hands up, and it's what's going to happen is going to happen. But I can't do that. And I'll tell you this, when I got into politics, you know, whatever it was, eight months ago now or so, folks said, oh, people are going to attack you. It's going to be a brutal world. And I'll tell you, it hasn't been. In fact, I get mostly positive feedback, you know, just about everywhere I go, on my Facebook stuff. You get people that, you know, have dissenting opinions, but they're generally polite. And you got one or two that like to attack, and that's okay. But, you know, to, to hear back from members of my community, hey, Greg, you're doing a great job. Thanks for all that you do. You know, we're so grateful to have you there. Um, it's not so much of an ego thing, but it's just a, 
uh, reassurance that you know you're doing what they what folks want you to do, then you're trying to make the world a better place. And when you know you get a call from you know Representative O'Day, who's the Deputy Minority Leader, who's somebody I've really looked up to in the last six months, uh, just a solid, solid gentleman, to say to me, "Hey, you really made a difference in the state of Connecticut." That it's a surreal moment. It really is. But I go home and I I look at my boys in the eye, and I that's they're my moral compass, right? Because they're they're still young enough that they want to be like their dad. So they do whatever they, whatever they see me do, they're going to do. So I need to go home and look them in the eye and say, do what daddy did today. And, and be, be able to be proud to say that and be confident in saying, if, if you do what I did today, I'm going to be proud of you. Greg Howard, representative of the 43rd District of Stonington and North Stonington. Congratulations on your first legislative session. We look forward to having many more conversations with you in the future. Thank It'll you. be my pleasure, Brian. Thank you so much. Finding farm stands in your area that sell locally produced food until now has been a bit of a hit or miss affair. Is something in stock? What else do they sell? And what are their business hours? But that's all about to change thanks to Eastern Connecticut resident Chris DeCarly, founder of the mobile app Fresh Please. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Brian. So Fresh Please, it's a fabulous app. Tell us how you came about so like creating it and why. Sure. So the idea with Fresh Please is that we're trying to help people find food at local farms. I mean, we want to both help people find new farms in their area, but also understand what's available right now at the farm. And so I work at a job that's about an hour from where I live, and I live in a kind of rural area. So I would often have to do my grocery shopping near my office after I leave work, and then I'd drive home. And it would always frustrate me as someone who loves good food. I love quality items. I love local fresh produce and it always frustrates me to be in the store buying a you know a firm flavorless tomato when i want a native locally grown tomato but i don't know if the farm stand that i'm going to go buy on my way home has tomatoes today and so i have to buy it at the store because we need it for dinner or we need it for lunch the next day or something so that was kind of where the concept came from it was like boy if there is a way i could just search for any farm stand that had fresh tomatoes when i need them like that day that would really be a, a great help to me so so this was quite a big undertaking because anybody who's ever done so like app development and I have not, but I do understand it takes quite a lot to do it, doesn't it? It does. Yes, it was. Um, it was. A, it was a really fun project. So I, I have a few colleagues because I work in technology. So I have people that I work with currently that I've worked with over the course of my career. And I just kind of connected with a couple of them and talked about the idea and they were interested. And I think they like the idea as well because it lets them kind of stretch their legs and they are application developers. And so they have the understanding of how to do it, but they had never really done it from scratch themselves with all the, the technology support that's involved. So it was a fun project that really leveraged the skills we had, but uh, gave a big opportunity for us to grow. So how long would you say it took to, you know, from sort of like concept on paper to actually seeing, you know, this app for real? Yeah, so it's it was a long time. It was it was probably two to three years. But one of the reasons behind that is, you know, I when I first had the idea, it was probably early summer one year when, you know, we're getting to the point where tomatoes might be available locally. 
And it took me a few months to kind of enlist the help of someone that I worked with. And I was writing up all the the use cases and how I thought the the app could function and help people. And then by the time we got started, it was getting into the winter and we we may have lost some of the momentum until the spring. And we said, hey, summer's coming again. Let's get this going again. So it was kind of off and on in these these spurts. And we developed heavily through the summer, but we didn't make it to launch until 2020. So it took a few years altogether with these off and on uh, periods of, of work, but definitely a lot of between coming up with the name and logo design and then developing the application itself and testing, it was it was quite a journey. This came about and was like available in 2020. COVID had hit. Was actually COVID of a benefit to you because people were sort of like probably not going out as much and and certainly were starting to utilize a lot more technology? Yeah, it, it was interesting. Early in COVID, so COVID hit, you know, peaked around probably April and May. It lingered, obviously, and is, is with us to this day. But around April to May, people were really looking for where to find food because there were supply chain interruptions. You couldn't, grocery stores were sold out. No one knew what to expect. And uh, it was funny because we didn't launch, we weren't able to launch until July. And so we we're sitting there watching this supply chain crunch and everybody looking for local food. Where can I find meat products locally? Cause a grocery store is sold out. And we were like, boy, we feel like we have the answer, but we just weren't ready to launch yet. So we did finally launch in July. And I do think that, you know, there's a lot of farmers markets that people rely on that didn't operate or didn't operate in the way they usually did last year. I mean, that drove people to find local farm food at the farm stand, which is kind of our focus. And yeah, it just throughout the year, I think it helped as well, just because a lot of people were focused on where can I buy food without maybe going to the grocery store uh, where they either don't have a lot of products or there's a lot of people there they didn't want to be exposed to or, or things like that. And obviously, how did the farmers take to it? Because I'm not suggesting for one minute that farmers are like technology backward because a lot of them use a lot of very high technology and we forget that farming is a very it's like technological so like industry. But how were they with something like this though? Because this is a little bit different. It's been interesting. I mean, there, there are definitely some farmers that you approach and it's it could be the same as any other line of work where there's some people who are a little more technology averse than others who don't have an interest in using a mobile app but for the most part farmers are are really excited because it seems like it's an area that they've wanted and wished there was a solution, but they didn't even know where to begin or what the solution would look like. And so when I approach them and say, I have a mobile app and this is what it does, that they're really excited to sign up for and to start engaging with their customers and sharing their available products. They found it very easy to use as well. That was a, a huge focus for us because one of the things that differentiates our app, we think, is that we want farmers to be continually updating the inventory, not to just list, here's the 37 products we offer throughout the year, but to every day or every week say, here's what we have in the stand today so that when you want to buy a product, you can go to the stand because you know it's available there. And so that was one of our focuses. We said, if we want farmers to use this continually, we've got to make it really easy and convenient. And so the process that they use the mobile app to update the inventory, the same one that the customers use to search for products, and it only takes them a few seconds to get into the app, a few touches, and they can update their whole inventory. So that was a big achievement for us because we did get positive feedback from farms after we launched. And it was it was just great because that was a focus for us going into it. And and then, of course, you know, it's a big thing, as you say, for, for consumers, for foodies. And of course, there's this whole big movement and it's been going on for quite a while now, this whole farm to table thing. So, I mean, really, you've sort of hit quite a niche, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, I hope so. I, I feel like there's a ton of activity in this local food scene, the local agriculture scene. I live close to and I support and know a lot of local farmers. And so I just love that I, I think our app is able to help them 
help their businesses, help communities to eat healthier, better foods that, you know, they're going to enjoy more and support local communities. It's, it's been really exciting for myself and uh, for my team, just because we feel like we're, we're really contributing to a lot of different people and helping out. So. And since you launched it last year, I mean, it's not quite a, a year old yet. It's been a case of other farmers have told their farmer friends and, you know, they weren't doing it and they, now they've jumped on it. I mean, it's how's, how's it working from that point of view? Yeah, we have. Um, it hasn't quite, you know, it hasn't gone viral. Uh, certainly, we're trying to, we're working hard to try to gain adoption in new areas. But in the eastern Connecticut, which is where uh, I live, it's where we first started. We've had a lot of farmers telling other farmers about it I and mean, spreading via word of mouth. You know, we have farmers who love it and they go to the farmer's market and they tell the other farms that they work with at the farmer's market, hey, check out this app. So there's been a lot of growth that way. But we are, we're working hard to try to breach, break out of the eastern Connecticut bubble because I think the real potential of the app is when it becomes more ubiquitous in a larger area so that people from Western Connecticut, when they're driving through Eastern Connecticut on the weekend, just to go for a scenic drive down Route 169, they know about the app because they use it when they're home in Western Connecticut, and they can use it when they're here as well to find uh, a great place to stop for some fresh food. The other angle is if we can get people in Maine or in Cape Cod to really start using the app, then when everyone goes to those places on vacations where they don't know the local farms, it's a great vehicle, we hope, for people to connect with their local agriculture scene wherever they are, even if they're not from around there. The good thing about this is that as a, as an app developer, you did actually create it for both Apple and Android phones. So that must have taken a little bit of extra development because often when people develop apps, it's either for one or the other, and then the other one has to wait, don't they? Yeah, well, fortunately, the developer that I, my friends who are the developers that I, I'm partnered with, they have a lot of experience developing very popular, very large applications that you know millions of Americans have on their phones. So they drove us to use a framework in developing the app where it was actually pretty easy to port over, which is what we call it, from one to the other. So the application is basically developed on the Android platform because it's what we happen to use with our phones. But then when we get to a state, we're ready to release it. There's a conversion process that basically adapts it so that it works on iPhone as well. So, I mean, we knew we had to cover both platforms. Uh, I, I can tell you right now, iPhone makes up a majority of our user base, even though we ourselves use Android. So it's definitely important to have that feature parity and that, that positive user experience in both areas. And here's the cheeky, like $64 million question is sort of how do you make money on this? I know that it, this isn't your <laughs> full time job, but I mean, ultimately, I'm guessing you want to make some money out of this if you're going to grow it. Yeah, we'd like to. We have a few different options that we've thought about, but we're really not acting on them or worried about them too much until we get further down the road. It would certainly be easier for us if we were to monetize it now because we'd have capital to leverage for marketing, which is really what we need for, for uh, further growth. But we just, we don't want to limit the adoption. The, the users who hear about the app love it. Farms that we approach that, that find out about it are excited to join. And I just, I'm really excited to be helping, again, those users and the farms, helping the entire agriculture market. And I'd, I'd like to see if we can make it as successful as we can and then figure out later uh, how we can make some money off of it. Well, it certainly is uh, a great thing to have. I have actually, uh, you know, downloaded it and had a look at it. And I live down more in the southeastern part of Connecticut, but I've already found some farms which I'm going to be uh, checking out. So uh, you've got another user there already. And uh, Chris, I'm just going to say to you, you know, ever so many thanks. We wish you continued success on this. And uh, we'll come back to this story at a later date. And so uh, we wish you huge success. And Hopefully soon it will become that viral downloading app that everybody wants. 
Awesome. Thank you. That, that would be an exciting uh, future for us. Chris Carly, thanks for joining us on Connecticut East this week. Thank you, Brian. If you want to try the new app, then visit the App Store or Google Play Store and simply search for Fresh Please. The Ark Eastern Connecticut invites you to participate in the 33rd Annual Gardner Johnson Memorial Golf Tournament Friday, June 25th at the Connecticut National Golf Club in Putnam. The Ark has provided residential, day, in-home and employment and social programs for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities and their families since 1952. Come and join us as we walk in partnership for full equality for people with IDD. Event prices and details at thearkect.org forward slash golf. It's mulch season, so come and visit Green Valley Tree LLC. We have a variety of colors for all your landscaping needs. Buy as much or as little as you want, pick it up, or we can deliver to your door. Call Green Valley Tree LLC for all your mulch, plant health care, and tree service needs at 860-234-4041 or find us at 577 Boston Post Road, North Windham, Connecticut. We are family-owned and fully licensed. Time now for a look at some of the other stories making the headlines in the region recently. In the Connecticut Examiner this week, funding to staff a board that oversees state contracts and procurements was eliminated in a move the board's chairman said could be a fatal blow. The State Contracting Standards Board was set to see $454,355 to fund five additional staff positions funded in a budget approved by state lawmakers. But a bill to implement the budget, which lawmakers convened a special session to approve, allowed that funding to lapse back into the general fund. State Senator Kathy Austin, co-chair of the Appropriations Committee, said Governor Lamont removed the funding after lawmakers approved the budget. It wasn't about the money, Austin said. The governor's office doesn't like the oversight component of it. They nor any other executive branch like having an oversight board like this. It was the same under the Malloy and REL administrations. In an email, Lamont's office said Connecticut has one of the most transparent processes in the nation for contracts. All are public record and available for anyone to see. And members of the executive branch are available to legislators for questions and to testify on any areas of concern. In the day this week, the owner of a road salt business displaced by the planned reconstruction of State Pier in New London for the offshore wind industry continues his attempt to block or delay a state environmental permit needed to complete work at the pier. Driven Enterprises owner and president Stephen Farrelly has filed what is known as a notice of exception, his recourse for a previously denied objection to the Connecticut Port Authority's plans for the pier. He argues he should be allowed to stay at the pier where he has operated his business since 2014, told to leave and given time to sell the remainder of his salt pile as part of an agreement with the Port Authority. Driven left the site at the end of February. The State Department of Energy and Environmental Protection already has issued a proposed draft decision on the Port Authority's application that recommends issuance of a permit. If finalised, the decision would permit the Port Authority to perform work essential to a $235.5 million project. The legal filing from Farrelly sets into motion a timeline for legal briefs to be filed from all sides by July 2nd. Oral arguments are scheduled for July 14th. 
In the Norwich Bulletin this week, a Plainfield officials hope an anticipated windfall of $2.1 million in federally earmarked funds to transform a 1.6-mile section of Warrigan into a walking and biking trail once other phases of the project are complete will tie into the larger Quinnebog River trail system that meanders through sections of Killingly and Putnam. Plainfield was one of six eastern Connecticut municipalities tapped to receive a total of $17.8 million in targeted federal infrastructure money recently secured by U.S. Representative Joe Courtney. In the Middletown Press this week, three men with a passion for home-brewed beer opened a new pint lover's destination earlier this year, just east of the iconic Aragone Bridge in Portland. Concentric Brewing Company is so named for the three co-owners' sense of having a common centre, according to financial planner Dave Peichert, who runs the business with Middletown firefighter Drew France and physical therapist Brian Ader. They opened in February during the global pandemic. All three of them live in Portland. The endeavour led to the opening at 91 Main Street in Portland. And in the Chronicle this week, Mansfield School System Regional School District 19 Food Service Director Stephanie Deason is not just someone in charge of serving lunch. She's a leader in the local food movement as she and her staff serve nutritious, locally grown food at the schools. And one of the recipes they use recently received national attention. Deason's recipe for kale zucchini bread was one of four published in School Nutrition magazine in March as part of a Better For You Baked Goods story. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at connecticut-east.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East This Week, where you can also listen to the show again on demand. And please like, follow and share on your social media platforms too. I'm Brian Scott-Smith. Thank you for listening. <laughs>